It's an honor to be here with you this morning. As you've heard, we are concluding our series first. Uh, so this will be our last one. In a couple weeks, we have Easter. It's hard to believe that. Uh, but I want to give us a little review uh, of where we've been in this series. We started out by looking at the fact that Jesus is to be our first love. And as believers, that, that makes sense. That, that above all else, we're to love God. And then the second week, we looked at the fact that kingdom priorities are to be our first priorities. That as we enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that that the priorities of our Lord and Savior ought to be our priorities. And then let's jump a week. Uh, week four and five, we looked at first fruits, that, that the Lord says, test me and see in these things, that, that it's uh, a way that God wants to move from testing him and the giving of our finances to really trusting him. And, and so you notice I skipped week three, because week three is really the core of Christianity. Week three is really the core of what enables us to live the life that God has called us to. That when, when we really boil it all down, that the reason Jesus came wasn't just to make us moral. Now that's not to say that Christians aren't moral and that we're not to be moral people and that through the power of Christ we don't become more moral. But Jesus didn't die on the cross in order just simply to, to clean up our language. He didn't... God didn't give his one and only son simply to, to help us treat people better. These are byproducts, but the reality of it is God did all these things because he loves us. For God so loved the world. And so at the very core of our relationship with God is an understanding of God's love for us. In fact, us embracing God's love for us. And so what I want to do this morning, I want to look at someone in scripture that really models in, in a really powerful way this embracing of God's love for him. And I want to be real honest from the beginning that if we knew this individual before he became a Christian, and we know a little bit about him before he became a Christian, none of us would have put, a, put him on our list of people who were going to make a difference for the kingdom. In fact, he would have been one of those individuals who would have been the furthest on our list of someone who would ever have received Christ as, as Lord and Savior. That's before he came to Christ. This man was born in Tarsus, the capital of the Roman Empire of Cilicia in Southeast Asia Minor. He was actually a strict Pharisee, and he was taught by one of the most respected teachers of the day, Gamaliel. And so he was, he was a student of one of the greats, a strict Pharisee. In fact, when we actually encounter Paul, he's in Jerusalem. And here he is, he, he's, he's not just present, but he's consenting of the death of the Christian martyr Stephen. He then began a vicious campaign of, of persecution against Christ's church, Christians. This man was on a mission to capture Christians in Damascus. On the way, he's blinded by a light. He hears the voice of Jesus. He's then led by hand to Damascus, where he meets a man by the name of Ananias, who baptizes him. And so this individual, he, he comes to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. He's baptized and then decides that he's called to, to preach the gospel. He's living for the Lord. Interesting enough, uh, he, he goes to church, if you will, and the believers there are skeptical because of that whole killing and persecuting Christians thing. Uh, you can imagine what they were thinking, you know, is, is this guy, is he a secret agent? Is he, is he coming in trying to get the goods on who are believers? And one, one man stands up and says, I'll, I'll take him under my wing. His name's Barnabas. And so Barnabas 
takes him under his wing and eventually finds himself in a place called Syrian Antioch. And there the church is praying and they identify this individual and Barnabas as, as missionary church planters. They actually commission him and send him out. Of course, you know, I've already sort of said the name, but I'm talking about the Apostle Paul, who at one time was a persecutor of the church, but became an individual that wrote 28% of the New Testament. He wrote 13 books in the New Testament. That's nearly half. And he planted at least, as far as we can tell from the scriptures, at least 14 churches. This is Paul. Now, I want to be really clear. Paul was not a super Christian. He was just an obedient Christian. And he had a really honest assessment of himself. We read, he's writing of himself in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, first part of verse 10. And listen to how he writes about himself. He says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, Paul's not speaking poorly of himself. He just knew what he had done. But do you notice where he leaves us? At where he's at. As a matter of fact, that verse, 1 Corinthians 15, the first part of verse 10 there, is, is a verse we should all memorize. It's a verse we should all know. Maybe it's a verse every morning we should sort of pray over ourselves. By the grace of God, I am who I am. Not because of my own doing or anyone else's doing, but because of God's grace, I am who I am. Because of God's profound love, I am who I am. And the passage we're about to explore is found in Acts chapter 20. Paul's calling the Ephesian elders to come and meet with him as he's on his way to Jerusalem. Now, a few weeks ago, we, we really dug in a little bit into the church in Ephesus. It was, it was built out of turmoil. Uh, it was built out of much persecution toward Paul and those who were becoming believers. Paul, however, had a very deep love for the Ephesian church. In fact, he stayed at Ephesus longer than almost anywhere else on his missionary journeys. In fact, longer than anywhere else on his missionary journeys. Paul didn't seem to stay real long anywhere. He, he, God just anointed the man, and he, he seemed to be able to plant churches rather quickly. He would leave, and, and a church would be established in, in short order. He stays in Ephesus for two and a half years, which doesn't seem long for us, but for Paul, it was like a lifetime. That's how much he loves the Ephesian church. Now look at what we read here in Acts 20, 17 through 24. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord of all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. Catch verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul spends some time with the Ephesian elders. He, he reviews his past, and then he introduces them to his future, and he's speaking to those who know him. I mean, he's either led those who are standing in front of him to Christ, 
or they were led to Christ by someone he led to Christ. In other words, he sort of, in a way of speaking, he's either their spiritual father or spiritual grandfather. And and so he's able to say to them, you yourselves know. And that's really important. Because the things Paul has said about himself, he's saying to people who know him. And that's a big deal. I can stand up here and say whatever I want about myself if you don't know me. I mean, all the good, I could could just go on and on about all these great things and who I am and all that. If you don't know me, you're like, oh, that's neat. Might be be a neat guy. But the reality of it is I have family here. My wife is here. My daughter's here. My son-in-law was up on stage. They know me. And so if I say something that's not true, they're able to call it out, aren't they? So Paul, with all confidence, was was able to say, you yourselves know. That's a big deal, isn't it? You yourselves, what do they know? Well, they know Paul's allegiance to the Lord, that he was determined to, how he was determined to conduct the ministry that God had given him. They knew that he was a servant leader, not lording it over people, but a servant leader. They knew the trials he had been through. He knew that his ministry was intensely personal, but he loved God, he loved those he was serving, he loved those he was reaching with the love and message of Christ. He was faithful in sharing the love of Christ in word and deed. They they knew these things. Paul says, you know this about me. Paul then sketches his future as far as he knows it. That his next steps are in obedience to God, that the Spirit is, 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 is drawing him to Jerusalem. In fact, the way that that's worded, it's, it's like he, the Spirit's pulling him, not, not by force, but, but, but luring him in to, to, to take this next step. It's something he, he feels in his spirit he, he just cannot not do. And then he says in verse 22, let's look at that verse again. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. First of all, what really jumps out to me is Paul emphasizes that his obedience includes an ability to live with uncertainty. And isn't that sometimes the real crutch of our Christian faith? Isn't that the difficulty? How many of us have said, I'd have greater faith if I just knew what was around the corner? And yet, let's be honest, we probably wouldn't. But Paul has this ability to trust God no matter what the circumstances. I don't know everything, I don't need to, but I do know this, he says, that my future... In my future, hardships await. And and so he feels constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, not knowing everything, but knowing one thing, hardship awaits. And and whether from a prophet or direct revelation, the Holy Spirit's testifying to him in every city that when he gets to Jerusalem, there will be persecution and imprisonment. Think about that for a minute. How many of us will be constrained by the Spirit in such a situation? Drawn. Yet Paul was no stranger to such things. Paul had been persecuted much in his Christian life. In one account, he, he actually is, is thrown outside the city by the city leaders, left for dead. And Paul gets up, goes back into the city. The believers are saying, look, don't continue to preach. They're going to kill you. They thought they had the first time. He says, look, I'm, that's what I do. That's who I am. That's what I do. He had been beaten, he had been left for dead, he had been robbed. I mean, he gives a whole list in one account of of all these things that had happened to him. And so for Paul, he's sort of sitting back and he's going, you know, okay, some hardships awaits. That's nothing new for Paul. But he knows what God has called him to do. William Larkin, Dr. William Larkin, who was one of the premier um, scholars of the book of Acts, had a privilege to take a class from him many years ago. 
He wrote this. He said, though all Christians may not be called to endure imprisonment for their faith, if they will enter the kingdom, they must so live under Jesus' lordship that, like their Lord, they will find themselves walking the path of suffering leading to glory. Paul wrote it this way to Timothy. He says, anyone who wishes to give a lot, live a godly life will be persecuted. Jesus said it this way. In this world, you're going to have trials and tribulations. But take heart, he says, I've overcome the world. If most of us were to be honest, we get frustrated because we want heaven on earth, but this isn't heaven. This is a fallen world. Where Jesus says, listen, they, they hate me, and so they're going to hate you. Be ready for that. But I'm with you always, even to the ends of the age. That there's, there's going to be difficulty. That's why Jesus said that, that the, the path you're taking, few have chosen. And, and, and it's a narrow path, and yet I'm with you. It's a way of blessing. and Don't give up. And Paul understood this. And through his life, he encourages us to, to wrap our minds and our hearts and our lives around it as well. See, then there's no final contradiction between the Spirit's compulsion and the Spirit's warning. God is mercifully preparing his servant to count the cost of his daily cross-bearing in a fallen world that hates Christ and, and those who bear his name. He's saying to Paul, I'm drawing you here. There's a purpose in it. But I'm warning you so you can fortify your spirit. So you can be ready. Not shocked when difficulty comes because I, I told you it was coming, but just know I'm with you. I'm in this. And by the way, isn't that a source of peace? That even in the toughest times, we know that God is with us. I have to be honest with you, on easy days, I don't have to exercise my faith all that much. But on those difficult days, I find myself exercising my faith quite a bit. James says it's because of these trials that we exercise our faith and we actually grow in the things of Christ. Isn't that the truth, church? In fact, this was at the heart of who Paul was. Paul had to be a pretty frustrating person to his captives because he understood what it meant to trust God no matter what the circumstances. But what's at the core of Paul's obedience? What's at the core of Paul's decision to put Christ first? Look back with me at verse 24. He says, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's taking an account of his life. That's, that's an accounting word, <laughs> this idea of taking an account. He's looked at his life and he's looked at the assets and liabilities and he's looked at what it means to follow Jesus. And he says, compared to doing this ministry that God's called me to. And by the way, the ministry of Paul is no different than any of ours in this room. We're all called to know God and make him known. That's our calling. Now, I don't know what your assignment is. Your assignment may be as a teacher. Your assignment may be as a clerk. Your assignment may be as a pastor, but our calling is exactly the same, to know God and make him known. And so Paul understood this about himself and, and he's, he's looked at his life and he says, my life isn't worth anything compared to Jesus and his mission for me. Now that's interesting. He's not meaning his eternal life. He's not meaning his soul or his spirit. 
Because we know what that was worth. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. If you feel worthless this morning, let me tell you something. God died on the cross for you. You were extremely valuable to him. Amen? Amen. Paul wasn't talking about his eternal soul. He's talking about his physical life. And see, Paul got this. If we look at the total of Paul's writings, we get an interesting picture of this guy, I alluded to it, who must have frustrated his captors, who must have frustrated people who wanted to persecute him. Because in one place, he says, look, to die is to gain. So can't you picture someone saying, Paul, if you keep preaching about Jesus, if you keep living the way you do, I'm going to kill you. And having Paul go, man, wouldn't that be great? (laughs) That's my goal. Thank you. To die is to gain. Would that not frustrate you if you were trying to persecute him? At what point, he's talking about his sufferings. He says, you know, these sufferings are for my good because when I suffer, I'm reminded of the suffering of Jesus. And the more I I think about my suffering and think about my goodness, I'm I'm not guiltless, but he was guiltless and he suffered. The more I'm just drawn to this understanding of God's love for me. So can you imagine someone getting ready to say, well, you know what, Paul, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going I'm I'm to beat you. And having Paul go, whew, you don't understand what that does for my spirit. Like, I don't like getting beat, but when you do, I just am reminded that Jesus was beaten. Jesus, have I talked to you about him? He came to die for you too. Well, that's it. I'm going to let you live then. Good news, I get to share the gospel then. You can't do nothing to someone like that. You can't do anything to someone who understands that their life isn't the greatest thing. Jesus is. And that no matter what he goes through, no matter what we go through as believers, that we're securely in his hands. Yeah, there's difficulty in this world. Some days are bad days. But he is with us. And in the blinking of an eye, which is our life, Eternity will be that place that we deep in our heart know we've been created for. Rather than choosing to pursue his own purposes, he chooses his God purposes, which is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul calls his pursuit finishing the course, finishing the race, the ministry. And here's the point. Here's the overall point of this account. No matter the outward circumstances, even if they include impending threats, our conduct should consistently fulfill our one calling as disciples making disciples. As those who love Christ above all else and make his kingdom first priority. That's first living. The Lord intends for all of us, not just Paul to live this way. He, He wants it for us. He's not just asking it of us. He wants it for us. Again, not because Jesus died on the cross so we would just be better moral people, although people who follow Jesus should be coming better morally. Amen, church? But so that we can really know Christ and walk with Christ and, and grow in Christ. His grace is, his grace is for our growth. He, he's programmed us for greatness, church. That when we come to Christ and he changes our destiny, he also changes our position. We're no longer enemies of God, we're, we're his children. And he's programmed us, reprogrammed us, if you will, for greatness. He sanctifies us. What's that really mean? It means we're becoming more by the power of the Spirit like Jesus. And his love and his, his character, his purpose, 
his priorities. You've heard me say this before if you've been around for a while, but when couples come in for marriage counseling, one of the first questions I ask them is, how are you with Jesus? How's the condition of your soul? And many times they look at me as if to say, well, I didn't come to talk about that. I came to talk about our marriage. Step one is Jesus. Because I believe with all my heart, I've experienced it, I've seen it, that, that when we align ourselves with God, that he does something, something supernatural within us. And we're not super people, but the supernatural power of God works in us. And he can heal marriages. He can change the way we deal with coworkers. He can change us so much that we can love people that aren't all that easy to love. And we can become people who maybe are a little easier to love. Amen? Here's what I know. I'm a work in progress, church. I'm a work in progress. I know I'm not what I used to be. For me say this before. I'm so thankful for that. I know I'm not what I ought to be. I'm still moving forward. But praise the Lord... I'm on my way of becoming the person God intends me to be. I'm moving forward. I'm in process. Paul was able to say, follow me as I follow Jesus. Now, Paul had already admitted he hadn't arrived. He wasn't saying, look, follow me because I'm some superhuman person that, that you can, can, can sort of admire and, and yet not become but sort of strive for. No, no, he's a simple We're on the journey together. And so you can follow me because I'm following Jesus. And if you're following me, then you're following Jesus. We should all be able to say that. You say, well, I'm not perfect. Join the club. But are you being perfected? Again, not because the greatest desire that God has for you is to be a moral person. His greatest desire is that you'd fall in love with him. Receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. But it just happens, just so happens, that people who do that filled with the Spirit of God become more moral. I want you to picture with me this scene. So easy to read right past it. There's something I'm going to draw our attention to. So here's the Ephesian elders. They're, they're, standing, before, they're standing before Paul. And, and, and who's in their mix? We, we don't know. We don't have all their names. But, but we can just imagine. Remember I said that in Ephesus was one of the great seven wonders of the world, the temple to Artemis. And silversmiths there would, would make trinkets of Artemis that you could take home and show to your loved ones. Hey, look, I went to Ephesus. I saw the temple. I was there, you know, way before you could have T-shirts printed. <laughs> I wonder, was there a redeemed silversmith, a converted silversmith in the group as an elder of the church now? There certainly was a converted Jew or two, perhaps leaders of the city who had received Christ, there definitely were people who had been given peace in exchange for the broken pieces of their lives. Could have been transformed criminals, liberated leaders of cults, and, and Roman officials who now said, no, Christ is my king. We can picture all these people new in Christ. And what is Paul doing? He's entrusting with them the continuation of the ministry because he realizes his time is coming to an end. And I love this because Paul knew that as God had done in his life, he could do in theirs. And that's true for us as well. What God can do in the life of one person, he can do in the life of any of us. That's the gospel truth. 
And Paul was, was so excited about what God does in the life of people, he, he, was, he, he gave his life for it. He believed in the gospel. In fact, in Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Have you felt that power, church? Have you entered into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? Then you're not alone. He's with you. He's working. But let me tell you, the Christian life doesn't work when we find ourselves valuing our life above him. It only works when we daily deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. My life, I can tell you, on a day where I'm doing just that, is a whole lot more fruitful than the days where I'm what matters. And dare I say, I still have some of those days. I came across this statement years ago. It's called the Fellowship of the Unashamed. The Fellowship of the Unashamed is a prayer that has inspired many to stand strong in their faith and to live unashamed lives in the gospel for Jesus Christ. It's led believers to live first lives, to love God above all else and to make his kingdom priorities theirs. It was originally entitled a Zimbabwean martyr's prayer. It was found among the papers of a young African pastor who had been martyred for his faith some hundred plus years ago. Christian martyr. They look through his things and they find this writing, The Fellowship of the Unashamed. I'm going to read it for us. It's going to be up on the screen so you can follow along. I am a part of the Fellowship of the Unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, slight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I now live by presence, lean by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, labor by power. My pace is set, my gait is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few, my God reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until heaven returns, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he comes to get his own, when he comes to get his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be clear. I've been asked many times in my life, what is my life verse? For some of you, that may be a strange question. When I was coming up in the early days of my discipleship in the Christian faith, everyone had to have a life verse, which was really frustrating for me because I didn't have one. I would think I had one, I'd read another one. I thought, that's really good. 
you know, to go on and read another one. I thought that was really good. And so they yeah, so what's your life first? Like, I don't, I don't have one. And, and, and they would go, aren't you reading the Bible? I mean, really, that's the way it was, the sort of pressure to have one. But, so I still don't have one. But to be honest, I, I, since high school, have aspired, aspired to Acts 20, 24. I haven't arrived, but I aspire. And while my mindset is in alignment with the teaching of this verse, the peace and power and security I have is unshakable. When it's not, fill in the blank. Again, Acts 20, 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel the grace of God. Church, I'm telling you, I don't have to survive. All I need to do is know God and make him known. That in reality, no matter the outward circumstances, even if they include impending threats, our conduct should consistently fulfill our one calling of being disciples who make disciples. As those who love Christ above all else and his kingdom priorities first in our life, that's first living. I just want to thrive in Christ and live first living I want to model that. I want to be an example of that. More importantly, I want to embrace that as I embrace God's love. See, really, when you think about it this morning, we've looked at three lives. We spent a lot of time looking at Paul's life. And again, not a superhuman Christian, just an obedient one. And then through the reading of the Fellowship of the Unashamed, we, we get sort of a, a, a really brief peek into the life of a Zimbabwean pastor some hundred plus years ago who was willing to give his life for the cause too. Again, not a superhuman Christian, just one obedient to the Lord. But then we have the whole hero of the story. That's Jesus. That when everything is said and done, it's not a message about what Paul did or didn't do or what the Zimbabwean pastor did or didn't do, and certainly not what I've done or didn't do. It's about what Jesus has done and what we can do because of what he has done. That as we embrace the very love of God and understand that putting him first is not what he wants from us as much as what he wants for us, there is power. There is true peace. There's security. That we can truly live the victorious Christian life. And what is that? That's a life trusting God no matter what the circumstances, believing that he is good and that he loves us. You can't do anything to a Christian warrior who believes that. And whether you see yourself as a Christian warrior or not, if you're in Christ, you are a Christian warrior. Filled with the Spirit of God. Embraced with the love of God. For much more than just being moral. But to have that power of God surge through your veins. Transforming not just your own life, but the world around you. God's not done with me yet. How about you? He's not done with us yet. How about you? God is calling. What's our response? Let's pray. Father God, I'd be amiss if I didn't ask it even now in the quietness of this moment that if there's anyone hearing the sound of my voice, who's yet to receive you as Lord and Savior, then why not now?
That's, that's the first and most important step. It's the life-changing step of embracing your love for them. That you sent your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for their sins, be resurrected for their salvation. And real life, real life only begins when we receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Scripture is really clear that when just one person makes that decision, there is a party in heaven on their behalf. God, I ask them if they've made that decision that they would let us know so we can help them in their next step, in their next step. God, thank you that you've called us not to do life alone, but with you and others. What a privilege that is. Precious Lord, I, I pray that as we leave this place, that you've so graciously met with us as we've gathered in such an amazing way. That as you go with us, as we scatter throughout this region, God, and beyond that, that Lord, we would walk in the knowledge of your love and the power of your presence. So that the world will know, the world will know the mighty God we serve, lover of our hearts. God, thank you for continuing to work this morning. Have your way, I pray, in Christ's name, amen.